Right. Okay, now you can go. We were missing Craig. <laughs> we do need a Craig. So since we're keeping an eye out on the Gabriel Wartman case with the Mass Casualty Commission, I thought I would share an article which was making its rounds recently. Headline is DTV News. I don't feel they're digging into it enough. Husband of Nova Scotia shooting victim angry after day of inquiry. End quotation. And cue the music. Just kidding. I'm more than just headlines on this episode. And I love a good Chelsea opener because it's just headlines. Just kidding. Just headlines all the time. Yeah. Here's another <laughs> headline. Completely yeah. unrelated. <laughs> Goat riding horse. Love it. Not that all openers aren't fair and great. I am actually going to read the article. I was just going to do notes on the article, but the article just like covered everything I needed. So I'm just going to read the article. Thursday, this article is from, it's just recently, I was hearing it all over the place when this was happening, so I figured we might as well cover it since this is something we're following. April 1st. Can you confirm it wasn't an April Fool's Day joke? Uh, no, I cannot. Okay. (laughs) But I feel like it wasn't. (laughs) But thank you for This is what happens when you read more (laughs) than just the headline, Chelsea. (laughs) I'm just going to read the headlines from here on out, except for this exception. Thursday was the first time Nick Beaton came to the public proceedings held in Halifax by the Mass Casualty Commission, and he said he was only faced with disappointment. That was the day the commission outlined its findings of fact so far regarding what led up to the killing of Beaton's pregnant wife, Kristen Beaton, by the gunman responsible for the Nova Scotia's April 2020 mass shootings. He says, I don't feel they're digging into it enough. I really don't. Too many details were left out in the inquiry's presentation on events, like what Kristen's brother was told by police after he rushed to the crime scene in search of his sister. Quotations, the information was told at the scene is that a young female left with chest injuries, says Beaton. Kristen's brother called me right then and said Kristen might still be alive. It gave us hope. Beaton says Kristen's brother even went to the hospital to look for her. The family's hope vanished when RCMP notified them of Kristen's homicide eight hours after she was killed. But during Thursday's public presentation, senior counsel for the commission, Roger Burrill, stuck to his overview of the inquiry's timeline of events on the morning of Sunday, April 19, 2020 which is just about coming up two years ago. The presentation picked up where it left off from the previous day, detailing the killer's movements after he killed his 17th victim, Lillian Campbell, on the side of Highway 4 while she was on her morning walk. Information gathered by the commission shows how close RCMP officers came to the suspect in his replica police car that morning. In fact, one officer, Corporal Corporal Rodney Peterson, passed the perpetrator on the highway going in the opposite direction, telling police dispatch, quotations, the guy, uh, he was driving slow, smiled as he went by, end quotations. Peterson did not immediately turn around to pursue the suspect, who then disappeared from view. The time was almost 9.48 a.m., and the perpetrator appeared on security camera footage at a residence in Glenholm, Nova Scotia, shortly after. The footage shows him approaching the door holding what looks like a long gun. The couple inside frantically called 911 and reported he was banging on the door. Surveillance footage from the property indicates the gunman only stayed a little over two minutes. By the time RCMP officers on the ground and a DNR helicopter in the sky arrived at the location less than 10 minutes later, the suspect was gone. At that point, surveillance video showed the commission indicated he was traveling on Plains Road in nearby Debert, Nova Scotia. That's where he encountered Vaughn, the Victorian Order of Nurses, continuing care assistant Kristen Beaton, who was parked at a gravel area roadside. According to her husband, it was normally seen as a safe place to pull over for a break in between client visits. Beaton and his wife had been communicating back and forth in text messages and phone calls about the situation, which they knew from social media had unfolded in Porta Peak, Nova Scotia the night before. Beaton told his wife in a text, if you see someone walking, don't stop. At 9.37 a.m., Beaton sent his wife a photo of the suspect sent out by police. 
but while the RCMP knew internally to be on the lookout for a suspect in a mock police car, the force didn't alert the public of that fact until a tweet at 10.17 a.m. If we had known, she would have been at home. There's no question. I believe that with every inch of my soul that she would have been at home if she had known, says Beaton. The last time Beaton spoke to his wife was on the phone at 9.41 a.m. Around 10 a.m., a witness driving on Plains Road reporting seeing the suspect and his mock police cruiser pulled up next to a vehicle at the spot where Kristen had pulled over. According to forensic reports, Beaton was shot through the driver's side window of her vehicle. At the same time, Vaughn nurse Heather O'Brien, who was on a day off, was parked at the same road 320 meters ahead, talking on the phone with a friend and colleague Leona Allen. Allen later told the commission O'Brien mentioned hearing gunshots and seeing a police officer. Then Allen heard her friend scream. The call ended and she couldn't reach her again. The commission says, according to forensic evidence, investigators determined the gunman also shot O'Brien through the driver's side of her vehicle. It took the commission several hours to present its information on what happened on Plains Road before it wrapped up today before noon on Thursday. Beaton remains dissatisfied with the commission's work so far. I don't like it. I don't feel like it's really doing what we marched and fought for. He said, I think they're scanning what's already out there. And the Mass Casualty Commission's public proceedings will resume on the week of April 11th. That's the end of the article. I think it outlines it really well, which is why I read it word for word. Yeah. The way these articles keep coming out, I feel like it's just all setting up for disappointment when the final report actually comes out. I really feel like it is going to be setting up for disappointment. I don't know what everyone's expecting. I mean, they're diving into something with the RCMP and I don't feel like they're going to come out saying the RCMP was wrong. But it says right in here, like, she was healed. And I should have put out a warning, but there's some really gruesome information in there. It says right in there, like, if she would have known there were looking for a police officer or something like that which is a lot of the focus of the episode that we did what are those horse boys up to take a listen if you haven't yet it's a great episode it would have been a very different outcome of situation and i'm really hoping we find some fault in that that they should have put out a lookout for citizens that they're looking for someone impersonating an rcmp officer that's my update. That's the latest articles coming from that Mass Casualty Commission. It's not findings. It's just... It's not findings. They're still putting their assessment yeah. together. And there's supposed to be some sort of report out in May with the final report sometime later in 2022. You ever notice we balance our intros with our actual episode topics fairly poorly? A yeah. very serious topic going into ancient <laughs> I structures. Do. I really do feel <laughs> that. And I always think like, man... <laughs> We got a great episode coming up, and then I think, wait, what did we do as the intro? It's probably going to deter half the listeners. Oh, well. (laughs) That's where our style comes from. (laughs) Yeah, it is. We just, you know, we don't balance it at all. Yeah. And that's why you're probably still listening. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to tenderize the listening audience into the following episode now. With the intro I found, and it's super short, so I wanted to go over it still. This is on Noetic.org. It's the Institute of Noetic Sciences. They do some interesting research, and they are looking for people for a survey for an investigation they're currently doing. So I thought I would bring this to everybody's attention, as this may be the right place. Do psychic abilities have a genetic component? The purpose of this study is to learn whether reported psychic abilities are associated with specific genes or genetic networks. If you are a healthy adult and have access to your genetic data through a direct-to-consumer company like 23andMe or Ancestry.com, you may be able to participate. The study involves attaching a file with the genetic raw data you received from the direct-to-consumer company and completing an online survey asking about questions related to psychic ability. Study activities will take around 30 to 40 minutes. Participants who complete all study activities will have the chance to enter a drawing to receive an iPad, brackets, current generation. Do I get paid other than the iPad? No, you just might win an iPad. And since it's a study on um, psychic ability through genetics, you should know whether or not you're going to win the iPad. I guess, sorry, psychic means more so like ESP. But I don't know. I actually, they didn't really specify what it was they were looking for there. Does astral projecting during a podcast count? I don't think so. Sorry, guys, I tried. But if you're willing to give your genetic data to a direct-to-consumer company such as 23andMe, I am not because I have reasons. I don't want them to I am to not as me. well. I have one, but I have not. 
Feel free to take a look on noetic.org. It's on their website. We might post it to one of our socials and participate and maybe win an iPad. But if you heard it here, you have to share the iPad. I did some reading. The head researcher on this one as well has a PhD in, I believe it's in psychology. She actually wrote a study on veterans and the use of meditation to combat PTSD. So does legit research. So it would be an exciting thing to read. It would be. And maybe donate your DNA if you're up for it. I mean, yeah, tons of other people are already using it. They might as well give it to somebody else to research here. Exactly. Because they're not getting the money. Maybe an iPad. Yeah. Anyhow, let's get into this episode. Okay, let's do it. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, now a self-help podcast for algorithm purposes. <laughs> Keeping in mind, our interpretation of self-help is help only you can give yourself. So you work on that while we talk about these fringe topics. Yeah, especially the dinosaur ghost one. It needs some listening. Anyhow, we are your podcast hosts, Taylor and Chelsea, here to distract your mind while you do the self-help in your body's needin'. Today, our topic is mythological sculptures. I think is a proper way to put it. I don't know why I connected these two things in my mind, but I did. And now it's kind of describing how they are connected in an episode title is a little hard. So I'm going to say megalithic sculptures. Okay, you know what I titled it in my notes? What's that? Whatever this episode is about, because I wasn't sure. <laughs> I can't wait to see what your research got us. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> when it comes to our ancient ancestors, we knew they were capable of some great things. If we're talking about megalithic structures, you can look at the pyramids. You can look at just the pyramids, actually. That's it. Really? Yeah. I thought there were more. Nope. Okay. That's yeah. disappointing. But when it comes to sculptures... There are some great things out there. Of course, most people's minds go to things like Stonehenge or Moai on Easter Island, mm. which really, if it had been visited at any other time of year, would have had a much better name. It was only visited at Easter? Yeah, that's it's Easter Island because they got there on Easter. That is very uncreative of whoever visited there. You'd be disappointed with Christmas Island as well. Yeah, Monday Island. Yeah. February the 26th. <laughs> TGAF Island. I was actually really hoping for a casual Friday Island. Yeah. <laughs> or jeans at work Friday. I guess if we ha happen upon an island on casual Friday, we can name it that. Yeah. Although I don't know if we're up to anything serious like island finding on a casual Friday. No, you wouldn't be, would you? Just Easter. <laughs> <laughs> Most people's minds immediately go to things such as the Moai or the Stonehenge. But there are just as, if not more mysterious, sculptures from that time period or a an unknown time period from unknown groups that inhabit many parts of the world. And we thought we would shed light on these sculptures in this episode today. Now, I know, believe Chelsea's going to be talking about uh, stone spheres that inhabit most of Central America. I'm going to be talking about the Great Plain Jars of Lao. Now, without further ado, I am going to let Chelsea take over her part. Plain jars? I'm excited to hear about that. What I'm talking about on whatever this episode is about, I've got you covered on the stone fears. Spheres. Spheres. Stone fears. <laughs> I want to see the stone fears. Definitely spheres. I meant to say spheres. Okay, so these bad boys are assortments of over 300 petrospheres, also known as a spherical man-made object of any size composed of stone. They must be of stone to be a petrosphere. Must be. It's a must. Well, isn't that the petro part? I don't know. Is petro stone? Well, petroglyphs are on cave walls, so I always okay, assume I that guess petro it means be? like stone writings. Yeah, which is why it must be stone. It can't be anything else. So here are some fast facts about them. They range in size from 2 meters in diameter and weigh up to 15 tons, which is a lot. They are mostly sculpted from gabbro, which is a coarse-grained equivalent of basalt. Others are made from limestone, 
and sandstone to lesser extent than the ever popular gabbro. That one's the main one. So that's for all you rock people out there that that means something to you. They appear to have been made by hammering natural boulders with other rocks than polishing with sand. The degree of finishing and precision of work varies considerably on the stones. That's all kind of hearsay of how they're made and we'll get to that. How do you know you weren't there? I, exactly, I wasn't there, so I can't say. A lot of people can't say, because well, anybody can't say, because they weren't there. The gabbro came from sites in the hills several kilometers away where the finished spheres are found, though some unfinished spheres remain in the hills. Just to talk about where we're focusing on for these spheres is mainly in Costa Rica. The stones are believed to have been first created around the year 600 with most dating to after 1000 but before the Spanish conquest. The only method available for dating the carved stones is stratigraphy. Stratigraphy? Stratigraphy? Stratography. You said it so much better than I did. But most stones are no longer in their original locations. The culture of the people who made them disappeared before the Spanish conquest, hence all the mystery. It is rumored that the spheres are perfect or, well, very near perfect roundness, of course. However, it is hard to say for sure as they have been damaged and eroded now over the years. So I guess it's all hearsay. The spheres have severed as inspir has served the spheres have served the inspiration for many as sculpture and architect the spheres are a national symbol a stone ball served as inspiration <laughs> for architecture yeah. yeah so were they also making stone spheres if you go to costa rica they are incorporated into many structures that are being created today okay so they're like I'll get into it a little more. I'm just serving fast facts right here. Not very well because I'm, you know, not saying words right. They're a very, like, prideful part of the country. They're very proud of them. And they incorporate them into buildings and stuff like that. But they didn't build them. They're all Europeans. They there. don't know. <laughs> no, not necessarily. There's other, <laughs> other people there. That's like us being proud of like Inuit snow architecture. We are. Have you ever seen what are those? It called is true that you see when you go on hikes. There are the, those um, structures. The Inuktitut, yeah. And people build them when you go on hikes and stuff. You see them. We're very proud of them. They are Canadian. Sorry for what we did to the Inuit people. Yeah. <laughs> The spheres are a national symbol and part of the cultural ethos of Costa Rica. So it's common to see them around, for example, at the government buildings like we were just talking about. It's incorporated into many things, just like the Inuktuk. It's a symbol they use with the Olympics and stuff like that in Canada as well. Not the balls, not the spheres, the Inuktuk. The spheres are a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Those are my fast facts. You know, I did those. First thing I asked myself when looking at these, first of all, I pictured bubbles. Those are not the sorts of spheres that these are. These are made of rocks. Not sure why after all that I pictured bubbles. But what I asked myself was where did these come from? And if they're man-made, then who made things like this? And of course, no one knows for certain where they came from or what purpose they served. Even though I said something like I knew where it was, but no one knows for sure. Of course, no, already read that. Let's go to the next thing. The spheres were discovered in the 1930s as the United Fruit Company was clearing the jungle for banana plantations as it was a prime location for bananas as it was stone spheres. And Costa Rica was a banana republic. Like that makes close? No, that had its government overthrown by the U.S. in the 1950s to install a dictator who was more favorable to American-owned banana plantations to ship cheap bananas back to the U.S. What? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that makes sense then. Yeah. I don't understand how they took that name for a clothing company and said, oh yeah, that's a good name for a clothing company. Mass death of third world people. Yeah. Yeah. It's been appropriated for sure. That means... Costa Rica? Costa Rica, Guatemala, a bunch of the That's Central really American a messed countries. up name, actually, when you put it like that. I love yeah. all your facts that you have. Okay, so... Most people call them fun facts, but in cases like this, no. No, that wasn't a fun fact, that was just... More like, of a sad fact. Yeah, a sad fact. That was from the sad fact. 
vault you have. Prime location for bananas and stone spheres. Workmen pushed the spheres. As Was this a long-term phallic graffiti plan? Basically, I guess, when you put it like that. Okay. Probably not a plan, maybe just a happenstance. Giant stone spheres and bananas. Yeah. Okay. But the workmen did push the spheres out of the way. I mean, either way, you take the two shapes by themselves or together. It is what it is. So workmen pushed the stone spheres aside with bulldozers and heavy equipment, obviously causing some damage as you do with bulldozers and heavy equipment. Inspired by stories of hidden gold, they also began to drill holes in the spheres and blow them up with dynamite. So that's nice. And now here lies the Palmar Sur archaeological excavations. And there are a series of excavations of a site located in the southern portion of the country of Costa Rica, the Diqui Delta, and are centered around the site known as Finca Six or Farm Six. I think that's six in Spanish. The archaeological findings date back to the Aguas Buenas period, 300 to 800 CE, or the Chiriqui period, 800 to 1550 CE. It was a multifunctional site accommodating a settlement and a cemetery. The remains of monumental architecture and sculpture are also present on the site. It was the same sentence twice good job on my notes the monumental Maybe it was just the emphasis <laughs> it was should i say it again i repeat <laughs> i repeat it comes up a lot yeah <laughs> it really does here it is again a third time just kidding the monumental architecture consists of two mounds which were constructed with retaining walls made of rounded river cobbles and filled with earth since many of the stone spheres in the region were removed from their original locations and serve as landscape decoration the site has become a storage location for spheres that have been returned to the national museum in addition to farm six there is also rahalba tambal tombal and El Silencio. There you El go. Silencio? Okay. Yeah. El that Silencio. Some of the dynamited spheres have been reassembled and are currently on display at the National Museum of Costa Rica in San Jose. The collection at the National Museum of Costa Rica is made up of six of the spheres. A lot of the spheres also ended up as long decorations for many Tico citizens. That's the history of the spheres. And there's many theories out there as or what the spheres are because nobody knows because the civilization is gone as i just went through if you didn't get that i do have a quick question yeah because i don't think you actually touched on it when they drilled into the spheres and blew them up did they in fact find gold no gold did they find like ancient technologies gnomes gnomes would be a good one but i don't think they found anything because there was no follow-up on that so i'm gonna say they were Perhaps a smaller sphere. I guess technically there would be a smaller sphere. Well, only if they did it the right way. I'm just going to go with rock because there's no follow-up on that. It was just literally they tried and that was the end of that. So if they found literally anything. I mean, if I found gold inside one of those, I would not be telling everyone I there's gold say inside of either. all these. I'd so say, yeah, technically, don't ask there, about it. So technically there could have been some. There could have been any number of things that you just said, but according to my notes, nothing. So let's find some theories on what these balls are. Some people say, my opinions on these people saying these things will vary. Some people say that these are remnants of Atlantis. So there's that. Is it Blavatsky? I don't think it's even Blavatsky. <laughs> well, yeah, she's dead by now. But... Yeah, I don't think she ever said the balls were from Atlantis. She put it in much more racist terms. Some people say aliens. Maybe it's just the budding process of previous humans. <gasps> you just connected it to Lavosky. <laughs> Some people say these are man-made by... Or, no, this wouldn't be man-made by nature. It would just be made by <laughs> nature. <laughs> I was ab-living and I fucked up. <laughs> Naturally made by nature is what I meant. <laughs> I mean, technically, anything man makes is nature made as, uh, by extension, nature We're made natural. as. Unless... We're natural. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Naturally made by nature. 
Some local legends state that the native inhabitants had access to a potion which was able to soften the rock. Limestone, for example, can be dissolved by acidic solutions obtained from plants. Research led by Joseph Davidovitis, Davidovitz of the, oh my god, Geopolymer Institute in France has been offered in support of his hypothesis. However, most of the spheres were created from gabbro and acidic resistant igneous rock. That is interesting theory though, because a lot of like ancient walls in the Americas, there are theories out there that they, they more so look like they're almost poured rock and how they fit yes. together. There's fringe groups out there that believe there were technologies in the Americas at the time to basically meld stone to do with it what you will. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because there's a lot of stone structures, particularly in like the America, South America. I don't think North America, but like the Americas, South America, and Central America. I just America. say the Americas because Central America, I'm always confused where the actual separations are. So I just say the Americas. Yeah. But I agree, I agree with the Americas. But there's a lot of structures where the rocks fit together so perfectly that it couldn't just be man-made natural rocks. And there's no there's no evidence of chiseling or anything like that on the rocks. Yeah. Nor does it make any sense how you would have to chisel it. Like the shapes would, of those rocks, walls. Yes. They're particularly made to fit in that position. In that obtuse-shaped yeah and they're yeah. smooth they're not just like a rock i picked up off i don't even know where i'd find a rock that big in that perfect of a position to put into a wall they're like perfect maybe that's another episode perfect maybe, I never had to look into rock it making rocks wall maybe making you can rocks. find them easy we don't know we've yeah. never looked into making a stone wall we haven't i wouldn't think it would be that easy but maybe it is <laughs> Maybe they don't want us to know because it is that easy. Maybe it is easy. We just haven't. Just like the it. gold inside them, their spheres. Exactly. And then you just don't say anything, and then the gold's yours. <laughs> so, other hypotheses about these perfect stone spheres, you really have to Google them or look at our Instagram to see how perfect these are. Like, I thought. Giants could bowl with them. Yeah, they're like perfect bubbles of rock. Of 15 tons of stone. <laughs> exactly. They were also thought to be placed in lines along the approach to the houses of the chiefs, perhaps. Or perhaps they could represent the solar system or just be inspired by various stages of the sun and moon, setting, rising, etc. A more astronomical. Are they not all perfect spheres? They say yes and no because there's been so much eroding of them. That they can't tell for certain, but there are theories of people out there saying they are, but they can't really prove they are because now they're not. Yeah, they're not. Some assholes in for gold into them, yeah. That's why I said, you know, happenstance they might be, but they can't prove anything because they've been around for a long time. They've been eroded and weathered and stuff like that, so obviously they're not, but they're near perfect. Another legend surrounding the stone, Central America ancestral groups believe that the origin of the universe Terra or Plachaki, I said that probably perfectly. Impeccable. Yeah, I know. The god of thunder used a giant blowpipe to shoot the balls of the circus gods of winds and hurricanes in order to drive them out of these lands. Hence, Terra's cannonballs. Hence, bubbles. Terra's bubbles. <laughs> Typically, they're attributed to the extinct Dekis culture and probably handmade by them, but they're not around anymore, so we just don't know. And that is the Central America bubbles. That's what I got. Was there any speculation, just because this they're found fairly far away, from, they know where the quarries are, and the stones yeah. are fairly far away, and the quarries happen to be in the hills. Has anybody speculated that they just made them in the quarry? as perfect spheres, set up pins at the bottom of the hill and just let the stone spheres go. That's the number one speculation. I knew it. They wanted to see how many pins they could knock down. Yeah. And that's where we get bowling to this day. We still call it bowling. That's a... Ancient Incan word. Ancient Incan word that we still use to this day. And we learned it here on this podcast. You'll learn it nowhere else. <laughs> That's why these people listen. 
Yeah, so that's, that's... Because, yeah, at least with a stone sphere, you can speculate how it got to where it got to yeah. as it had to come down a hill. I literally didn't read anything of people speculating how it got to where it was, and it makes perfect sense when you put it that way. They bowled it to their location. And the pins are lost to time, unfortunately. They are. <laughs> or they were actually filled with gold, and there was less That's what we don't know about them. Yeah. yeah. Gold <laughs> pins, and we don't know about them at all. And yeah, that's the stone spheres of whatever this episode is about. I think this is a good way to start this portion of the episode off. What do you think of when you hear the term Lao? To some, it may bring to mind the Supanusim phones from King of the Hill. Laos rules! Laos rules! Yeah, that's it. To others, it may be the fact that Nixon bombed the shit out of this country during Vietnam War. But to a select few, including the UNESCO World Heritage Foundation, it may bring to mind the Plains of Jars that inhabit Laos. Now, what are the Plains of Jars? Well, they are thousands of carved stone jars dotting the landscape of northern Laos. Yet little is known about this expansive megalithic culture. The people who carved and transported the jars or where they lived. And just so we're all on the same page, Laos is a country fully landlocked in Southeast Asia, just inland from Vietnam, just above Cambodia. And we're talking about mason jars, right? Of course, stone mason jars. And in fact, again, mason being a Laotian term for jar. So they are really just jar jar and Laotian. And they hold all sorts of things like overnight oats. Yes. <laughs> the ancient Laotian delicacy. I knew it. Now, these jars are spread out over um, at least 120 different locations in this northern Laotian province and are somewhere generally in the range of one to three meters tall each. Now, these 120 different sites that have these stone jars on them can have as few as one or as many as 400 or more jars on the field itself. Is this specific to Laos? I think so, and particularly this region of Laos, but it also said it forms a line basically that would be a salt trading trail all the way to Bangladesh. So I couldn't find oh, any wow. confirmation outside of Laos, but I'm pretty sure it's just in Laos that I can confirm all this. Weird. Okay. Yeah. And they're not sure, but a lot of the fields that they find these jars in also have stone discs that they believe are lids, and many of the jars also have lips on the top that would have made for lids to be placed on top of these jars. So they believe most, if not all of the jars, were actually made to have lids on them as well. I see a picture here, I googled it, and one has a lid on it. Yeah. Now these are massive, like they, again, one to three meters tall. That's about anywhere from four to 10 feet tall. They weigh upwards of 10 metric tons, which is about 22,000 pounds. Oh. And they are mysterious as hell. Basically, I couldn't even find speculation on who made them. Really? Like they don't have any idea of the group that made these. Huh. Much less common is the incidence of buried stone jars, noted from as few as 18 sites, though it is likely more exist, concealed beneath dense forest cover. The plain of jars is made up of at least 3,000 giant stone jars up to three meters tall. Until recently, the plain of jars was believed to date to the Iron Age 500 BC to 500 AD. Wow. However, a new study published in the journal PLOS 1, or PLOS, reveals that some of the massive jars could be more than 3,000 years old. Oh my gosh. And at the end, I am going to get into why we don't know much about them and why you've probably never heard of them as well. Okay, I'm holding my questions. Okay, that's good. And just so that we're on the same page, the province in Laos that this is in is called Xiang Kuang. And I think I said that correctly, but I apologize for any mispronunciations. This is kind of a, it's a nice flat plateau farming region of Laos. It was actually a, a trail from basically the Mekong River over to the uh, Bay of Tonkin in Vietnam. So it was a very big trading route. So they're even like in a smaller region of Laos, not just like confined to it's Laos. Not it's not all of Laos. No, a it's, it's a smaller region. Yeah, it, it's a small kind of farming region of Laos. That's so weird that it's in a specific region like 
just in there not like what would it be doing in that specific region yeah we're going to talk about that eventually okay good and of these three thousand jars only one possesses a carving the rest are blank the one that has a carving on it is known as the frog man and it depicts a man viewed frontally in a bass relief i don't know what that means but um apparently it's common enough that basically everybody described it as a bass relief his arms extended upwards his legs bent together beneath him and this carving is worn and faded. In height, approximately 60 centimeters tall, and parallels between this frogman and a rock painting in Huashan in Guangxi, China have been drawn, and the Chinese painting, which depicts a large frontal image of humans with arms raised and knees bent, dates to about 500 BC to 200 AD. Nobody speculated that this is the same culture, it was just kind of offhandedly mentioned in several articles. Mm. And it's interesting that it's only one, or it's crazy that it's only one of 3,000 jars that actually has anything like art etched into it. Which yeah. it kind of makes you think that it's done afterwards. Very well could have been. I'm just looking at, a, you can barely see it in there, the, the carving. Oh yeah, it's old. And since most of these jars have lip rims, it is thought that the jars all originally supported lids. Although few stone lids have been recorded, this suggests that the bulk of the lids were fashioned from perishable materials. Stone lids with animal carvings have been found at few sites such as the Banfakio or Site 52. The bass release carvings are thought to depict monkeys, tigers, and frogs. Stone discs have also been found. The discs, which differ from the lids, have at least one flat side and are grave markers which are placed on the surface to cover or mark a burial pit. These grave markers appear more rarely than jars, but are found in close proximity. Similarly, the stone grave markers are unworked, but have been intentionally placed to mark a grave. To the north of Shenkuang, an extensive network of intentionally placed largely unworked stones marking elaborate burial pits and chambers are known as the Standing Stones of Huafan. These have been dated to this Bronze Age. Lao wow. is just apparently riddled with like ancient mega sculptures. These jars lie in clusters on the lower foothills and ridges of the hills surrounding the central plateau and upland valleys. Several quarry sites have been recorded, usually close to the jar sites. Five rock tags have been identified, and because we apparently are going to have rock nerds in this episode, they are sandstone, granite, conglomerate, limestone, and breccia. The majority of the jars are sandstone though, and it is assumed that the plane of jars people used iron chisels to manufacture the jars, although no conclusive evidence for this exists. It's just, how else are you gonna do it? It's gotta be iron tools. There are regional differences in jar shapes that have been noted, while the difference in most cases can be attributed to choices and manipulation of rock sources, some differences in form appear to be unique to specific sites, such as variations in the placement of the jar apertures. Interesting. It's not a very large area that these would be spread over though, because lava's not even big itself. No, but I believe the province it's in, and I was looking at this, Shengkuang is... Mm -hmm pretty big it is 15,880 square kilometers or 6,130 yeah. square miles but for it to have variance within that area is pretty yeah but in like i said it is there are over 100 sites like 120 sites where these stone jars that's pretty show. crazy this area was first brought to the european front and center in the 1930s by a french explorer by the name of kalani she connected the location of the jar sites to ancient trade routes in particular with the salt trade she assumed that the salt was a commodity sought after by the plain of jars people which brought traders to the xiankuang plateau the xiankuang area is rich in metallic minerals mainly due to the granite intrusions and associated hydrothermal activity. Two principal iron ore deposits exist in Lao, both of them in Xiankuang. The presence and location of the numerous jar sites in Xiankuang may relate to trading and mining activities. History has shown that Xiankuang, at the northern end of the Anamite Range, provides relatively easy passage from the north and the east to the south and the west. Within the geographic setting of Shanquang, the jar sites may reflect a network of intercultural villages, whereby the location of the jars are associated with long-distance overland routes, which connect the Mekong Basin and the Gulf of Tonkin system. Within these 120 sites, the most investigated and visited jar sites are close to the town of Fonsavan. The most well-known one is known as Site 1. There are currently 
Sites 1, 2, and 3, and Site 16 near the capital of Xian Kuang, and Site 23 near the big hot springs in Muang Kam, Site 25, the largely unvisited Foucault district, and Site 52, the largest known jar site to date with 392 jars near a traditional Hmong village only accessible by foot. That one looks like it's in like a forest, the Site 52. It just came up as a search as the most popular. I'm sure you've all kind of guessed this by now, but one of the biggest mysteries about the sites is how these massive jars weighing up to 10 metric tons were dragged from the quarry to be placed in groupings up to 10 kilometers away or 6.2 miles. You know, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, why? Because they're all placed fairly close together why would it be placed along a trading route? Like it wouldn't make sense to put salt or whatever into one and then into another and into another and into another. That doesn't make sense. We will get into the speculation. You bring that up and that's also a good point. Like who would drag that there? That doesn't make sense. Who would do this? It doesn't make sense. And basically the how they got there, most scientists are in agreement that it was some sort of like wooden roller or sledge situation to pull them to the location that they were placed at. But it just remains speculative, much like how they actually created them. Yeah, exactly. Because we still aren't exactly sure when they were placed there, who placed them or why they were placed there. And they look like they're partially in the ground. Some of them, yeah. Like planted. Some of them are entirely under the ground too. They look like they're just put in there like willy-nilly too, like some of them are sideways. And part of that might just be like time, because like some of these are about three th over 3,000 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, the overnight oats that they placed in there, they yeah. just like fermented in such a way that yeah. it kind of just pushed them over they're a little heavy. bit. They're heavy. You, you got to get them out immediately or they become explosive. Now, like I said, the French geologist and amateur archaeologist Madeleine Colani excavated inside caves in the early 1930s and really brought these sites to the front and center attention of the European mind. These have been known about for way longer in Asian cultures, but again, from a Eurocentric viewpoint, which is pretty much everything written in English. This is when it comes to light for us. Many people have speculated on what these jars have been used for, because unlike a stone sphere, which is easy to just clearly look at them and say they rolled them down a hill to bowl, jars serve many purposes. Which of those purposes were these jars used for? The French geologist Madeleine Colani found materials to support a crematorium theory in the 1930s. Colani mm. also recorded and excavated at 12 Rapid. plane of jar sites and published two volumes with her findings in 1935. Kalani concluded that the plane of jars was an Iron Age burial site. Inside the jars, she found embedded in black organic soil, colored glass beads, burnt teeth, and bone fragments, sometimes from more than one individual. Around the stone jars, she found human bones, pottery fragments, iron and bronze objects, glass and stone beans, ceramic weights, and charcoal. The bone and teeth inside the jars show signs of cremation, while the burials surrounding the jars yield unburnt secondary burial bones. No further archaeological research was conducted in the area, however, until November of 1994 when Professor Eiji Nita of Kagoshima University and Lao archaeologist Tongsa Saya Vong Kamdi surveyed and mapped Site 1. Nita claimed that the surrounding burial pits were contemporaneous to the jars as they were cut into the surface on which the jars had been placed. Nita believed that the jars were symbolic monuments to mark the surrounding burials. He dated the plane of jars to the late 2nd or early 1st millennium BC, based on the burial urns and associated grave goods. Saya Van Kandi undertook survey and excavation between 1994 and 1996, supported by the Australian National University. Peter Bellwood interpreted these stone jars as a central person's primary or secondary burial, surrounded by secondary burial of family members. Archaeological data collected during bomb clearance operations supervised by UNESCO archaeologist Juliet Vandenberg in 2004-2005 and again in 2007 provided similar archaeological results. Like Nita, Vandenberg concluded that the jars and surrounding burials were contemporaneous. Also, a cave at Site 1 is a natural limestone formation with an opening to the northwest and two man-made holes at the top. These holes are thought to have been chimneys for a crematorium. Madeleine Kalani excavated inside the cave in the early 1930s and found materials to support a crematorium theory. Kalani also recorded and excavated at 12 plane of jars and published two volumes with her findings in 1935. Kalani concluded that the plane of jars was an Iron Age burial site 
I already said said this part, so apparently emphasis added. <laughs> Variations <laughs> in the practices of cremation inside jars and secondary burial jars, as noted by Kalani, have proven difficult to explain. The cremated remains seem to mainly belong to adolescents. While the bomb clearance operations did not involve emptying the jars and thus no additional evidence could be gathered, Vandenberg suggested that the stone jars initially may have been used to distill the dead bodies, that the cremated remains within the jars represent most recent phase in the plane of jars. The jars with smaller apertures may reflect the diminishing need to place an entire body inside. That is their idea. However, geochronological analysis using the age of detrital zircons demonstrates a likely quarry source for one of the largest megalithic jar sites. Optically stimulated luminescence dating suggests the jars were positioned at the site potentially as early as the second millennium BC. Radiocarbon dating of skeletal remains and charcoal samples places mortuary activity around the jars from the 9th to 13th century AD suggesting that the site may have maintained ritual significance from the period of their initial placement, unlike historic times. Of all the remains that they had found, all of them are about a thousand years after the jars were placed there. So it possibly was not the original use of the jars, but that's what they were used for later on. Well, I was just going to comment, there's too many jars. It would be a waste of resources for any era build that many jars for like a crematorium there's no way that's what it was used for originally yeah just just throw the bodies where they will yeah like if you're gonna have a crematorium you have a crematorium and that's where you burn the bodies but i could see if you happen upon them using them for some sort of ritualistic purpose if you've if you had no purpose for them yeah exactly you could be like these are just like divine we just came across these and there's a bunch of them in i mean they look fairly uniform in the way that they're put down and maybe you think that they're divinely inspired and you use them for like a human sacrifice or something like that but you don't create that for human sacrifice or yeah you don't put that much work into sacrificing people or burying people especially like this region of the world first off doesn't really experience winter so you don't have to worry about permafrost so it's very easy Mm -hmm. to dig a hole to bury someone like you can just cremate you can like it's a forested area you can just cremate people out or you're using something for ritualistic purposes or you're cremating it doesn't matter if you're not even using it for that you're creating a certain space to be able to do that and you're not using million different separate spaces to do that it's too labor intensive but the hypothesis put forth by researchers in the 1930s where the jars were a type of crematory where bodies were left to decompose before the bones were removed and buried in surrounding ground the new discovery seems to back up most of that data and then, sorry this is information from the 2016 excavation that happened the skeletons uncovered in this new work attest to the cemetery's function but the mystery still remains as to the function of the stone jars the heaviest of which is carved from one single piece of sandstone which the British geologist Brad Baldick has estimated to be at around 32 tons. Leah Genovese, a plane of jars researcher at the Thammasat University in Thailand, not involved in the study, tells, this came from the Christian Science Monitor, tells them, before the new excavation researchers had recovered two skulls, four long bones, and ten bone fragments, the importance of this new work cannot be underestimated. It is the beginning of a new era that will shed light on the plane of jars. Team leader Dougald O'Reilly, damn Australians, I never understand their names. Dougald? Dougald? Is Dougald a name? Or is it Dougald? If it's Australian, it's probably Dougald. I don't know what it is. You do the one that makes the least sense. Dougald O'Reilly of the Australian National University says that the team is finding various types of burials. There are... Do I do the... No, I don't do the Australian accent. It'll just turn into a transatlantic accent. There are pits full of bones with large limestone blocks placed over them and other burials where bones have been placed in ceramic vessels, he says in a press release. Our excavations have also revealed for the first time at one of these sites a primary burial where a body was placed in a grave. O'Reilly told the BBC that although the work has just begun, firmly establishing the purpose of the jars is a big first step. I don't think there is any doubt now that these jars were related to mortuary practices. There is no evidence of habitation around the jars. 
The bodies weren't buried with sacred objects or artifacts, so it's difficult to figure out the status of the individuals buried near the jars or where they came from, but further excavation and genetic analysis for the remains over the next several years will finally help shed light on the Plain of Jars culture. They have found evidence of three different types of burials at the jar sites, however. Primary burials where a full human skeleton was laid out, secondary burials where bundles of human bones were interred, and burials in small ceramic jars that were then marked by distinctive quartz boulders on the surface. The buried ceramic jars are quite different from the massive stone jars above the ground. Such jar burials were relatively common from a burial in parts of Asia at different times. But and again, this is the thing they keep talking about. Radiocarbon dating of the human reigns from the ceramic jars and the other burials suggests most of them were interred between the 9th and 13th century between 700 and 1200 years ago, which would make them much younger than the stone jars themselves. So yeah. it's really a secondary, like we've said already, it's a secondary use at best. I'm going to go ahead and say that for sure it has nothing to do with the like origins of the basin jars. The other option that's kind of put forward from an archaeological standpoint makes a lot more sense. Some specialists claim that the efforts required to have made so many jars suggest that they were designed to capture rainwater during monsoon seasons and later boiling it for use by caravans passing through the region. Because like we said, it would have been a trading route. So the need for water in the area year round would be necessary. Okay, that makes sense. However. There are way easier ways to ensure that there's water than building these sculptures. That's true. You wouldn't have to go through that much. We have these things called man-made lakes. And even back in the day, they would have known you can dig holes to get water to pool. Yeah. And that is a hell of a lot easier to do than to sculpt giant 10 metric ton That's jars. That's a lot more labor intensive. But of course, my favorite explanation is the Lao mythology of it all. Lao legend tells of a race of giants who inhabited the area, a king named Kun Chung, who fought a long and ultimately victorious battle against an enemy. He supposedly created the jars to brew and store huge amounts of Lao Hai. Lao means alcohol, Hai means jars. Mm -hmm. So Lao Hai means rice beer or rice wine in the jars. To celebrate his victory, another local story states that the jars were molded from natural materials including clay, sand, sugar, and animal products in a type of stone mix. This led to the locals to believe the cave at Site 1 was actually a kiln, that the jars were fired there and are not actually hewn from stone. I guess to get their shape, they would have to be like they have lips and stuff on them they do but from at least archaeological investigations are all like single pieces of stone mm, so that's a harder way to go with it me personally playing through elding ring right now believes that ancient lao people believed in warrior jars and were just mm. trying to build a race of warrior jars to take on the elden lord however that might not really make sense in our world given that we don't inhabit the same world as elden ring so that's just me throwing that one in there. Alexander may need another explanation after all. As I was telling you about this, did you notice that there's a fairly huge gap in investigation? Of what? Like years? Or... Like it was investigated in the 1930s and then it wasn't investigated yeah. again until 1994. Okay. I thought it was 2016, but yes, that's a yeah. I really wanted to use this, but I already unfortunately used a sad fact in this episode today. Can you use more than one sad fact in an episode? I am going to use more than one sad fact. I have an explanation for a sad fact. So many people say I am full of fun facts. And when they tell me that, I hit them with a sad fact to show them that I am more than just a one hit wonder. Well, now you're going to be full of sad facts. Now, now unfortunately, I am just full of sad facts. <laughs> During the Vietnam War, there was a trade route through North Vietnam that went right through this province of Laos. Mm -hmm. And it actually is known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It's how they got weapons to the Viet Congs. It ran right through Xiang Quang province in North Central Laos, where the jars sit today and did at the time. It is the most bombed region in the world ever. Oh my gosh. So first off, I bet you didn't know that Laos is the most bombed country in the world ever. I ever. know that now. You can thank Henry Kissinger for that. Actually, I just listened to a great podcast. Now I'm going to be thanking you for that because I know that. <laughs> 
Henry Kissinger, total horrible human being. He is the one who signed off on all this. I just listened to a great six-part episode podcast on Behind the Bastards on him. It is both depressing and hilarious. I highly recommend it. He is the personification of the piece of shit. What you need is a second in command who understands the intricacies of organized villainy. Is this I can offer you? Perfect! You're hired, uh, number... Number Killinger. Dr. Henry Killinger. And this is my magic murder bag. People like him for some reason still, but yeah, more bombs were dropped on Lao in a year period than were dropped during all of World War II. So the US dumped tens of millions of cluster bombs in the area, creating craters, destroying some jars, and leaving lots of unexploded ordinances in the area, which made archeological digs in the area extremely dangerous. Over the last decades, international projects have cleared bombs from several sections of the plains. So those sites I listed earlier are the only ones you can safely visit. And even then, most people still only stick to sites one, two, and three because they have been 100% cleared of bombs. Even in the villages around there, like you see lots of scraps from like shrapnel used in like the uh, building of structures. It's, it's very depressing. Of the more than 100 identified jar sites, less than 10% have been cleared and are accessible for traditional archaeological investigations, studies have stated. But that means also that if you happen to go to Laos and you want to visit one of the safe ones, they're actually very accessible. You can take pictures of yourself standing in these jars still. They look gigantic compared to people standing yeah. next to them. They're very cheap to go see. Here's a review from 2011 of somebody that went and saw it. Megalithic sites of Xian Kuang province, better known as the Plain of Jars, are so numerous and shaped unlike anything that you will see elsewhere in the world. Getting there is still pretty adventurous. It is either a flight or a bus ride from Vientiane, Luang Prabang. I did the latter from Vientiane and it took 13 hours. Site one, two, and three are the main sites to visit. Others have opened up now too, but they are not on the itinerary of the guided tours. I went on a mini bus tour with three others organized via a guest house in Fonsab. The most interesting new development is the discovery of a quarry some kilometers away where they also found half-finished jars. Our guide told that a foreign archaeologist was working at the sites now to piece together more about the history of the jars, who made them, and why. They will not apply for World Heritage status until more scientific evidence is found to sustain the theory that the sites are cemeteries. It's not a World Heritage? This is 2011. I think it happened oh, after okay, they okay. actually got UNESCO okay. status. The visiting experience of the site is still much as described below by the two reviews from 1997 and 2006. You have to stay within the marked paths for fear of unexploded shells. The whole surrounding landscape is dotted with bomb craters and trenches. No. The road to site two and three is still unpaved and bumpy. And yes, at least at site two and three, you are still allowed to climb on or in a jar to have your picture taken. There is an entrance fee to go see site one. It is 10,000 Laotian kips, which is about $1.10 Canadian which is about a dollar American. At site number one, there's a little souvenir shop. All sites have a small drink and food stall. It is all very low key, however, at sites two and three, there may be 10 tourists when we wow. were visiting. While there were about 30, mainly Laotian, at the much bigger site one, that is also the closest to Fonsavin. We went first to site number three, and that is also the one I liked best due to its fine, idyllic location. Site one, not only has the only jar with a carving on it, but also the biggest jar, 2.5 meters, and the only jar which is still covered by its lid. The mysteries that still surround this plane of jars, the strangeness of the objects, and the remote location reminded me of Easter Island. So that's from somebody who went there as a tourist. And of course, because this is a site that you can look up on Google Maps, that means it also has Google Maps reviews. And of course, that means that there are one-star reviews. Oh, good. I was just about to ask. So here are the one-star reviews that I was able to grab. The entry for this place costs 10,000 kips, but one must take a taxi to get to the site. A guide charges 60 US dollars to drive us to site one and two. But at site two, no indication on where jar clusters at the site are located. All jars are filled with water and can be mosquito breeding sites. No maintenance on the site whatsoever. The jar should have covered or lighting or shed. Visitors should take raincoat or umbrella, and visitors should reach site before 4 p.m. The steps leading up to the jar site are not particularly safe, very crudely done. Such a great legacy, but grossly yeah, maintained. Yeah, fuck those jars. We'll never visit. And of course, keep in mind again, 10,000 kips is $1. 
So this guy's complaining about a $1 entrance fee. Okay, the steps are a safety hazard. I'll never go there. They are. And of course, my favorite review I came across, scary giant jars, not gonna lie. Those are the plain jars of Lao. Truly a mysterious, ill-known-about, often-forgotten world heritage site that I feel that everybody should know a little bit more about. And to you, you do. And that's where we are. I had no idea that these were even a thing. I mean, as much as nobody knows anything about Lao. It, it, it seems like it's a part of a major trading route. It was. It's not so much anymore. I guess not. I would say that it would probably tie to that, but like in what part would it tie towards that? Like what would it need jars just, you know, a couple of meters apart? And specifically, these aren't like really near villages. So like somebody had to like have intent to go put yeah. these out there. And maybe we can mix this all together and just say that people wanted traveling merchants to come to their area. So they made sure the pathway to their village was littered with alcohol jars. It very well could have been, actually. I mean, I can't come up with a reasonable thing in my mind. I mean, it seems reasonable when you say it's on a trading route, but it's so close together that it doesn't make sense. To like move salt from one two meters away and you move it across and across. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense as a crematorium. Well, and especially like if it was also water too, you think you'd be able to draw a fairly easy line from a major populace of people on Hmm. one end to a major populace of people on the other end at the time. No, that doesn't make sense But I I at least in the investigation, I didn't see anything That doesn't make sense either. It doesn't make sense as any of that. So that's what makes it so, I guess, mysterious. It doesn't make sense for anything except overnight oats. Or, you know, holders for giant stone balls. But that requires a bit of a jump across a giant body of water. So That's true. But that was my attempt at a tie-in for this episode. Chelsea, do you have anything to add? I don't add? think I have anything to add. As always, I just add it where I see necessary, where I can interject. It calls it like you hear it. I like that. Exactly. <laughs> and we have been Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye! Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh